Okay, thank y'all. Thank you, Thank y'all for, for being at the last, first and last Listen Up podcast. The cast of Listen Up, everybody. <laughs> episode one, the final episode. <laughs> that was awesome. That was really awesome. So, yeah, you've already pod faded. You're still sitting there and you've pod faded, Gary. <laughs> so, happy birthday, Adam. So, who would have thought one watermelon so many years ago would have given so many of us so much content after all these years? Candle. Well, there was a watermelon, too. Oh. I've seen both. So, hi, guys. Everybody having fun? Yay. All right. I am your host. Taylor for the weekend, and I am doing my interstitial. We are getting ready for inappropriate conversations, so I know that that is one that my husband loves, and he is in the chat room, so that's good to see that. We are happy to see Babalu, Florida Mac, George in Atlanta, Good Humor Penguin, a Mib, Pommy Kiwi, another Mib, and two Pride 48 Studios in there. Okay, for those of us that are in the studio, Hendrick and Dan are still selling raffle tickets. So if you have a couple of extra bucks, it is a dollar a ticket, six for five, or boots to balls for $10. So we definitely want to get as much as we can to build up that 50-50 cash raffle. I can say that I did do a donation of boots to balls today. It was interesting. I was not (laughs) expecting. I think I got an extra ticket and I'm glad for it. Thank you, Hendrick. Thank you for my for 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 a, a moment in New Orleans I'll never forget. So, so so anybody who is interested, Hendrick and Dan are over in the other studio. We also are tying one on with Ron and Gary. So if you haven't actually tied your knot yet, Gary told me I think that they need 275 knots. So if you've done one, go over and do another one uh, in a little bit. So or in the next couple of minutes before inappropriate conversations starts. So, so is anybody still hungover, or have we all hydrated? No, we nobody's seen Kyle yet. We we have we have established he is in the building, but we we don't know exactly just what level of uh, dehydration he is currently going through at this point. So, yeah, we may we may not see Kyle the rest of the weekend. So I hope everybody enjoyed those orange shorts because that might be the last time we see Kyle. So, but at least he's safe. That's all that matters. That is all that matters. So, um, we know Cocktails and Cream Puffs is on the schedule. However, Taffy and I will be doing a show. We are doing a a one-time show as well that hopefully will become a evergreen episode of Pot is My Co-Pilot at some point. But it is going to be an interactive show. So, we want everybody here. We are going to have a lot of fun. Um, It is going to be, those of you who enjoy competition, there might be some competition to it. Um, and we also have some other great shows tonight. Pod is my co-pilot. will be on at 6 o'clock Central. And if somebody had a schedule for me, I could look at that. So after Pod is my co-pilot, no, nothing else matters. After Pod is my co-pilot, nothing else matters. No, Poke It With a Stick is on at 7 o'clock, and that is followed by Geeky Gay, um, where it'll be myself and, and Ricky will be on with... Adam, and we will be doing the Hot Ones Challenge with Buffalo Wings, and that will be from 8 to 8.55. At 8.56, I will probably be having blue flame shooting out of my ass. So stay tuned for that. Everybody got quiet as soon as I said blue flame shooting out of my ass. Everybody's been talking until I said that. They're all, well, okay. There is cake. Cake is good. What kind of cake did we get? Does anybody... But, oh, Cheryl seems so angry about that. The rese- you know. so, so, Cheryl, is that cake a little bitter right now? No, I think it pisses me off more than that is marble, because that just fucks with everybody. Cause marble cake is awesome. Okay, 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 okay. So, actually, at 8.55, thank you, Peter, if you, you can put that on the seat. Um... So at 8.55, I apparently will be doing a group therapy session for anyone offended by vanilla cake. We will be engaging in CBT, which is, in my department, cognitive behavioral therapy, not the CBT that Big Fatty is used to. Hello. And by that, of course, I mean the Charlotte... What is it? The Charlotte... Charleston Ballet Theater. Charleston Ballet Theater. Not at all. Cock and ball. Torture. So... Um, we also want to make sure that everybody signs the posters and the card for mags. 
and there may be another card out there that we want to have folks sign. And um, I just want everybody to have a good time. And it's still 158, so we have a little bit more. Thank you. Um, and we, we're down to 58 seconds. Just 58 seconds of my voice out there on the interwebs until inappropriate conversation starts. And we're going to be talking about comic book movies, right? A little bit? Okay. I will be participating a little bit more in that then, I think. Probably at some point. So, uh, is, is the cake good? Well, I, I'm not going to ask Cheryl because I, I can't handle the rage for another 20 seconds that the vanilla cake. It's lightly fro- Well, that's going to make me mad. I will. I love because what do I love more than anything? Buttercream frosting. Publix chocolate cake with buttercream frosting. Okay. So, everybody, if everybody has their cake, let's sit down and enjoy an episode of Inappropriate Conversations starting in just 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. That's right, I'm counting down because I have nothing else to say for the last five seconds. <laughs> Four, three, two. Inappropriate Conversations, everybody. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about why we watch. First, a few um, uh, in-the-room sort of house-cleaning things I probably should take care of right up front. We got in a little bit late to, uh, to New Orleans this year because of American Airlines and weather in Charlotte and stuff of that nature. So the swag that we brought is not in the bags. It's in the back of the room. So it's uh, just inappropriate conversations information with two Buckeyes. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Buckeyes are basically the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of Ohio. So... If you have a peanut allergy, stay away. Otherwise, they're really wonderful. In fact, for the last couple of years, I've been infusing vodka with Buckeyes for the purposes of making Reese's peanut butter cup, or in this case, Buckeyes martinis, really, really good. But um, it takes a while to strain out all the candy. That's the hard part, but uh, the reward is worth it. The other thing I brought with me, and I'm not looking to create a traffic issue uh, front to back, but... I brought with me a handout here at the front of the table that people can come and grab anytime you want to. Uh, I know that I joined Pride 48 probably about halfway through the lifespan, of the current lifespan of this show, meaning that there's a lot of past episodes and things that have happened. I mean, Archer struck me last night when Arthur, Archer was talking that there's, there's a lot of material that probably for someone new isn't going to get served up by iTunes or other podcatchers because podcatchers tend to play with 20 to 40 uh, recent episodes at a time is how they work. And like Archer, my mentality has always been, it's on the website. So at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org or the .com for Inappropriate Conversations just redirects there. Everything I've ever recorded is there, but that is also kind of not a whole lot of help. Short of putting a monthly index out there where everything is sort of can be found by day, what I decided to do this year for the first time is to sort of give people an index for the different drummers. As uh, anyone remembers from last year, a lot of times the different drummer as a figure is the centerpiece of one of these inappropriate conversations shows. And so what I did was I took all the different drummers, including this episode, so 216 of them, I guess, and um, alphabetized them by name. So you can see everybody who's ever been a past different drummer, what my relationship to them is, why I've found them, why, why they've inspired me, and the date which I think is helpful. If somebody said, well, I really would like to hear what Greg had to say about, you know, the Cohen brothers, you can figure out exactly where on the website from a year and month perspective you could actually find that episode. Because, again, most of them not, not going to be available on podcatchers, but definitely available at inappropriateconversations.org. So that covers the swag at the back of the room, which is candy, and the um, index of information at the front of the room. And then before I jump into the topic, I want to kind of give just another little piece of background because I was very relieved today during the Foul Monkeys show that the room was not in for a political conversation because I didn't plan a political conversation this time. Uh, inappropriate conversations veers wildly and often in collision form with religion and politics and popular culture. 
But I decided this time, especially with not going not gonna to have a co-host, that I would stay away from the religion and the politics and kind of veer into popular culture and hopefully you know, throw out some questions that people can offer their perspectives of because I was a little bit gobsmacked this year by something I'd never really thought of before. And the main topic of the show is, well, why do we watch the things that we watch? But as I veer into that topic a little bit, I want to hit two things. First off, my background. And then second, um, what kind of created this epiphany for me? Because I did have an experience that made me think, wow, if you just kind of showed up to this particular thing, whether it's a play or a concert or, or a movie, completely unawares, um, you know, what would that experience be different? It would be very different in some ways in some cases. So from a college perspective, I probably have two different things that are true about me at the same time. One of them is that I probably went through college as a, as a, a frustrated film critic and or college radio DJ, you know, and glad that I stayed frustrated because that notion of being a newspaper or magazine-based film critic has been drowned out by the voices on the internet. And I'm very glad it's been drowned out by the voices on the internet because that means there's more voices out there, there's more people doing it, but you don't see the next Pauline Kael or Stanley Kaufman coming out anytime soon because we simply don't need some quote-unquote expert in some national magazine telling us you know, what's coming and what it's like and what to think about it. That's become very democratized. And the same thing is even true to a greater degree about music. I rarely listen to radio. I usually listen to something on my phone that's shuffling because there isn't a single radio station anywhere, including, including on the, the uh, streaming services that offer the variety that I'm looking for. Even Spotify, where I've been dabbling here lately, does a really good job of finding the things that I like and putting together genres of them. But what I really want to do is break those genres and listen to everything kind of all at once. I want my Bach, my Black Sabbath, my Pat Benatar, my Donna Summer, just all back to back, please. Don't, don't make them, don't segregate my music for me. The other thing about me, though, was that I did go to school for journalism and I was going to be a serious syndicated columnist kind of track was kind of where I thought I was going to be. And if I'd stayed there, the goal would have been maybe somebody like a Mike Royko out of Chicago, something along those lines, somebody who was serious and dealing in commentary. But I was convinced, in fact, I told my wife before we got married that I was convinced that pursuing this course was going to lead me to be assassinated by the age of 40 by a radical splinter group of the pro-life movement. Melissa's sexy talk. <laughs> <laughs> One of my sexier talks, as a matter of fact. Um, but I, I was just sort of, if I did what I wanted to do well, I was kind of convinced that at some point I would probably put something into print or into spoke, spoken word that would probably create some sort of extremely negative backlash. And I think we've seen that here now. Now, for 20, 20 plus years, I looked like I was crazy. That prediction made no sense. But to be honest with you, in the last couple of years, uh, I, don't, I feel vindicated that maybe steering away from that path was a good idea. So what I do is as a hobby, not monetized. Um, it gives me an outlet. It kind of provides my wife and friends a little bit of relief. They don't have to hear all of it. I can share it somewhere else. But today I'm going to lean more toward that film critic pop culture thing. The other reason I thought I wanted to do that was that I was a little bit concerned that the last two times I've come up to do a podcast live at Pride 48, I have been, at moments, emotionally overwhelmed. A lot. And it's... I've decided what it is, is that there's an experience of the fourth wall in live performance that is just completely different. You have to put on a really bad play or a really bad musical for me to not have an emotional response at a play or a musical. And, I, and I've never really been able to put my finger on it, but if I were watching a movie version of something like um, you know, The Lion King or Wicked, uh, sitting on my couch watching even on a very big screen TV with all the lights out and popcorn and all that I wouldn't have the same reaction. It would, I have that some sort of an emotional distance But I have tremendous respect for those people who put on theater Because I know that if it's done reasonably well, it has an impact on me And again, I, I can't put a finger on it exactly, but I think it's because there isn't any sort of emotional distance You're sort of there experiencing something that's happening live that people are doing for you Live and you know, not from Greg up in the balcony somewhere with an aisle seat, but for you collectively as an audience. And so I thought, well, I better stick closer to popular culture because this experience also has that same kind of dynamic in terms of, hey, I'm sitting in a room full of people I really care about talking about stuff, and if I really care about the stuff I'm talking about, 
And then if the stuff I care about connects me directly with the people, it's kind of like the, the first walk of the earth where I was kind of sharing some thoughts about from a friend who had gotten married and was worried, was going to get married and was worried her dad wouldn't come to it, all that sort of stuff. It, yeah, it really gets to be a bit much. And I wanted to play it, uh, play it safe, I guess. But you never can predict what would happen when you try to play things safe. So first question for me is, how many of you have seen Come From Away, the musical? I got some hands, and I knew Tom and Terry's hands would go up, because, and, well, Cheryl has, obviously. <laughs> Nico, excellent. Um, I went into this with some warning, because I listened to uh, Scott and Cindy on the Seder Sphere. I interact online with the Robs in Chicago, so I, I was not unaware of what was going to happen. But when I was watching this particular musical, it kind of dawned on me that I was probably sitting next to somebody who had no idea what was coming. And this thing is powerful enough that my wife encountered some online chatter um, and even talked with friends who didn't mention that it was musical. That somewhere along the way, come from away with its soundtrack of 25 songs and all that, um, they had sort of lost that piece of it because the story is what happened on September 11th when planes had to land in a small island off the, course, off the coast of Canada because all air traffic through the United States was completely banned for several days. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff, you know? And from a musical perspective, it is wonder it's a wonderful show. This Consider this a recommendation. It's full of joy. It's got laughs. It's got, uh, it's got a romance angle. Uh, to me, as somebody who's worked in the supply chain field from time to time in my career, I was just fascinated by the supply chain pieces of the story. I mean, how does a community with less than 20,000 people in it suddenly take almost half that many more people into its community overnight with almost no warning? So it's, uh, it's really wonderful in the way it tells the story, keeps it light, and, and a brilliant staging in that you basically have a dozen actors playing at least 35 parts. And so it's interesting from that perspective. But... As I was sitting there, I thought to myself, wow, if you just had tickets to the theater, if you were just one of those supporters of the arts who always goes to everything, and you didn't really pay attention to this one, and you had, say, you had an emotional experience in 9-11, I didn't so much. I mean, I don't personally know anybody who was one of the 2,600 people you know, who, who died in New York that day. I know some people who you know, had that sort of lucky I didn't go to work that day story, but you know, not. I don't feel like I'm directly emotionally connected, but... If you had lost a friend that day and you came to this musical expecting all singing, all dancing, um, might have hit you upside the head pretty hard. Maybe there's somebody out there who might have to consider whether they would want to go, might should listen to the soundtrack first to kind of make up their mind. Hey, do I want to experience this? Is this too soon? You know, at what point will that particular moment in our history not be too soon? I don't know the answer to that, but would it be too soon? So... As I was thinking about that and how I thought we might process it, it occurred to me that there's a lot of things that we watch, whether it's television or movies or plays, where what draws us into it isn't the same every time. That There's probably a lot of people who tell themselves, well, I always go because of the plot or I always go because of the actors. But I think that's probably not true. And that for me with musicals, I always go primarily because of the songs. If I don't like the songs, it's going to give me a little bit of hesitation took me a long time to decide to go to Wicked. I had to listen to the soundtrack first because not a Wizard of Oz fan. Didn't necessarily, was not necessarily interested in seeing it inverted. At least I didn't go for that reason. But a couple of the songs really won me over. Um, that including a funny story. I had an a uh, employee who had gone to see Wicked and was trying to get me to go see Wicked. And one day on a super casual Friday, she wore the shirt that she bought at the, at the musical to work and came into my office and said, hey, I want you to see this shirt. I, I need you to, I need, I've got it at Wicked, and I still think you should go. And it was a shirt that she bought, in my opinion, a size too tight. And um, it, was a, it was a defying gravity shirt, but I couldn't read the letters on the shirt because the shirt itself was defying gravity at the same time. So I thought, well, I, I actually had to ask her to, to tell me what the shirt said. I thought, well, okay, now I kind of feel like I have to watch the show because that is the song I like best, and this is the... You know, so it kind of it kind of does that. But musicals is easy. I wanted to hit a whole bunch of dramas and a whole bunch of genres and see if I'm you know just see how much of a creature from another planet I really am. Whether everyone else kind of experiences things the same way. 
I definitely want to end with superheroes. Um, so we'll kind of hold that off a little bit because I feel like the different drummer segment will key in really well with that. But the other thing I found is when you go online and you're looking for genres, you either end up with this really dumbed down list, drama, comedy, and the rest, or you end up with a list of like 50 or 70 or something crazy. So I kind of took it down to something like a dozen and said, is the experience of deciding whether I want to spend my time and money in a movie theater different? Is the decision point different if the show is a monster movie or sci-fi or Western or a war movie or a horror movie or one of the different kinds of comedy or the more serious stuff that comes out kind of at the end of the year is, I call them Oscar bait, and I say that lovingly, these are movies I enjoy, but it is what makes you go different for each, each one of those sort of kind of things? Does it trigger in a slightly different way? And um, to me, for monster movie, which is the easiest, anybody have any thoughts on why you go to see a monster movie? I mean, let me ask a question differently. Does anybody go to see a monster movie for any other reason than the monster? No. Yeah, I mean, Raymond Burr was in the first Godzilla. It didn't really lead me to say, well, I'm going to go because Ironsides is in this. But I, I don't know that you'd go for any other reason than that. that. It's one of those where the character actually drives it. But if you went to more like science fiction, it's probably only the character that drives it if it's an established franchise. Like people will always go to a Star Trek movie because they're invested in the Star Trek characters. And you can even see the, the sort of success of the reboot of Star Trek kind of work that if you got enough actors who could do a good enough imitation of Bones and Spock and Kirk, then people would kind of go with it. But if those imitations hadn't been good enough, if, if Carl Urban hadn't been right on target for McCoy, it, they might have lost a lot of people, you know. And Star Wars is kind of the same thing. The, the first, the quote-unquote first three episodes where they introduced a lot of characters and tried to deal with a lot of backstory, it had a bit of a rocky start because people were not very willing to accept Jar Jar Binks. They really wanted the characters that they already knew. But sci-fi may be actually more plot-driven if it was something brand new if it was a franchise that was being established for the first time or a non-franchise show. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if science fiction, which is really close to Western in terms of the kind of you know, story, uh, movies like Fire, uh, Serenity and the TV show Firefly are very much Western and outer space. But with Westerns, most of my life, it's been about the actors. I could get the people who I grew up with to go to a John Wayne movie and um, that was sort of what led them. And probably the generation before it was like you know, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. It was the star drove, drove you into the vehicle, and it kind of really didn't matter whether it was farmers or ranchers or what have you. There are people who will go see a John Wayne movie, even if it's not really a Western and not set in America. When we visited Ireland a while back, they still have um, shrines and monuments to John Wayne from the filming of, the, of A Quiet Man. You know? So that's one where I think the actor kind of really matters. But where I began to struggle was with like war movies and adventure movies and things of that nature because um, maybe it's just too broad of a topic, but when you get past like the John Wayne thing, if what makes somebody say, well, I'm going to make a decision between the deer hunter and apocalypse now, and what's making me pick one of these over the other? What is it the uh, is it the plot? Is it historical accuracy? Is it the rating? I think. A war movie that's not rated R might not be looked at as being authentic enough in one way or another. Um, Platoon was a controversial movie, and I think part of that was that there was a lot of people who experienced Vietnam earlier than the period of time that was shown on the film, and their personal experience in war was different. And for that reason, they were like, eh, I'm not interested in this, it doesn't feel real to me. Whereas the other people who saw Platoon and kind of had an almost traumatic experience of remembering when they went. Uh, the first 40 minutes of uh, Saving Private Ryan kind of brings that to mind. There may have been a lot of people who actually were in that particular uh, Normandy landing who decided, I've heard enough, I know better than to see this movie. I experienced it once, I don't want to experience again. And the better that's put on film, the more realistic that is, it's, it's more likely to be too much for me. So there's something about plot and setting, maybe both in Westerns and in war movies, that you might be able to get somebody to go to a movie simply because they want to see, you know, a Western that's set in that time period recreating, you know, a, a cattle crossing in a movie like Red River or a particular war. But 
as much as plot might be part of war movies, I'm trying to figure out if anybody goes to horror movies outside of an established franchise, but horror movies for any other reason than plot. If you had asked me, do people go to see horror movies more often because of plot than almost any other genre, I would have been surprised by that. But I kind of think it's true. You know, it's you're going to a movie because there's vampires or because there's zombies, and that might be a fairly common denominator form of plot. But what else is it other than plot? If you're deciding, well, I want to go see this quote-unquote scary movie, the scary aspect of it is the storytelling. And it just seems a little bit counterintuitive to think that of all the genres I've hit so far, horror is a genre where the storytelling is the most important piece. Because I don't go to enough horror to be able to say for sure that, well, I'm, I'm going because of this particular actor or this particular director. You know, there are Wes Craven fans who will go to anything Wes Craven, um, but I'm, I'm not one of those. So for me, when I do go to see something like that, it's usually show me something I haven't seen before or, or uh, upgrade something to something brand new. Um, bring, bring a new flavor to the traditional sort of vampire story or the traditional um, witchcraft kind of story. And so that one surprised me. And we haven't gotten to any of these genres besides Western where it's all about the actor. So when I called this out um, on the pink carpet, I think a lot of people rightly said, hey, the genre I'm interested in is porn, and the reason I watch is actors. And I think, well, no, they didn't say that. They said dicks. But it's the same idea, right? <laughs> you know, and the person performing matters a whole lot more than the plot. If he happens to be a plumber in this episode, or if he is, you know, if if she's a housewife or a business where it doesn't really matter. It's the person that you want to see on the screen, and I thought that's generally pretty true of comedy as well. Um, for me, the there is an actress that I will always watch no matter what, even if I have read up and there's terrible reviews and I, I kind of know it's bad, and um, it's Elizabeth Shue. I will simply watch anything she's in and I've got a few good reasons for it I mean she's very bright and she's a reasonably good actress she's been Academy Award nominated she appears in a variety of stuff she loves soccer I love soccer there's stuff there but the sneaky reason is that if we ever had the filmed version of my life and I have no idea what that screenplay would read like but if we had the filmed version of my life I would want Elizabeth Shue to play the role of my wife she hates this but I say it again. <laughs> I play fair. I think that for the actor in that particular show, it would probably be a 30-something era Timothy Busfield. You'd have to picture me with uh, a lot less weight and wearing like a sweater with no sleeves and buttons and being uh, very fastidious and uptight. You know, some of this really isn't acting. It's a little bit spot on. I get to pick you know. my husband is. So, but Cheryl has not yet told me what her pick for her husband is, so... We'll, we'll leave that open. The microphone is right here for anyone who has a point of view. But uh, so I think that kind of plays the most in comedy, though, because, you know, my wife and I went to see Leaving Las Vegas, and um, we went to see it on Valentine's Day. Terrible. Sight unseen, no critics read, no idea what the plot was. It was an Elizabeth Shue movie. It was Valentine's Day. Of course, we're going to go see it. And it's an understatement to say that's probably the worst Valentine's Day movie in the history of Valentine's Day movies. Uh, we were talking about some, some art house films this morning around breakfast that might arguably be worse, but Valentine's Day is the popular version of that same genre of stuff. It's like, hey, let's watch a couple people die. At least there's one rape scene in it. We're golden, you know? So it's like, uh, yeah, not, not good, you know? It's actually the shower scene after the rape scene that made me think, I'm going to have to go home and take a shower after this movie, and not for the good reasons, not for any Valentine's Day reasons. You know, so kind of, but I do think that thinking, maybe thinking that movie was a comedy, that I think probably most people, when you get to comedy, you really are at the actor in some ways. People will, they'll go see a Will Ferrell comedy. The Will Ferrell is not, not just an actor, he's almost become in some ways kind of a genre. And the generation before that, it was the Chevy Chases or the, or the Belushis. You know, you'd go see a movie because that actor's in it, and there's a certain expectation of what you're going to get based on kind of what they do. And that's different, because to me, how we, how we horse trade on comedy is not the same thing as how we horse trade on horror. In some ways, if a really famous established actor was appearing in a horror movie, the decision to go to that movie would be slightly different. It would be, 
you know, it, well, it would be unusual for one thing. You, you know, suddenly have it was like the uh, the Coppola version of Dracula, where you had Gary Oldman appearing in the role. You know, you're not going expecting a B movie. You're going expecting some weird combination of Oscar bait and horror film. And I'm not sure romantic comedies flip it around too much. Um, my daughter will go see Jennifer Aniston movies expecting either romantic comedies or something along those lines. So still sort of the actor driving it. And maybe there's some degree of, of a plot mix in there where, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't see out romantic comedies, so I'll have to have help in terms of if I'm wrong here that something drives people to it. Usually when I get a romantic comedy that I like, it's a surprise. It's always a surprise because I never really expect that. Probably my favorite is While You Were Sleeping. And again, I didn't go to it because it was a Sandra Bullock movie. I'd probably go to it because it was another Valentine's Day and I'm no longer allowed to pick movies on Valentine's Day. You know, so, but, you know, so if you asked me sort of objectively, like one of those quick lightning rounds, is your favorite romantic comedy a Sandra Bullock vehicle? I probably would say no is kind of a knee-jerk reaction that didn't seem likely to be true, but it, as I think about it, it probably is. So there's a little bit of that in terms of comedy and romantic comedy. That then led me to the serious stuff. And instead of dealing with like dramas and different kinds of dramas, I just kind of rolled that all up into this concept of Oscar bait. Because there's a certain kind of movie that wins awards, at least in America, and those kinds of movies tend to be sort of dramas, and along those lines, you get this particular kind of film where I don't believe that you have um, people going to see those because of any relationship with character, um, even less so maybe than you'd expect the plot. Most of the time, you're going to see these kind of movies either because of a certain actor who's in it or a certain director who directed it, or the critics, and notice, if I'm right, the first time on this list of genres that film critics actually matter is here at Oscar Bait. That you can't talk me out of an Elizabeth Shue movie with a bad review. You simply can't do it. A little heads up on Leaving Las Vegas would have been nice, but you can't talk me out of it with a bad review. And likewise, you know, I've got, we'll get to this a little bit with the comic book folks, but I've got friends who did not like the reboot of Star Trek and they saw the new shows each at least two or three times to confirm their decision that they didn't like the new reboot of Star Trek. You just can't keep them away because of bad reviews. But when the, the serious movies come out at the end of the year, I think people are looking to somebody to say, well, first off, now that there's 10 Best Picture nominees, I'm probably not going to see all 10. Only one of them is going to be animated. It's a token entry. Uh, at least one of them is going to be foreign. The commitment level is really high. So what do I do to help me decide where I'm going to spend that time because you're also more likely to see movies that are two and a half three and a half hours long in that group so the commitment level's higher and i think the critics kind of do play a role you either have favorite actors favorite directors favorite film editors if you're me um dd allen's on the list um or you don't and if you don't then you're probably reading reviews and listening to people and trying to figure out well i want to see the winner so who do i think is going to win i'll go see that one um Art house movies are a little bit of a different animal, but it's similar in that an art house movie probably doesn't have any expectation of winning big awards short of maybe independent spirit type awards. And I would put a lot of the, uh, the gay and lesbian film industry in this kind of group where a lot of those films are extremely serious and they carry a lot of weight, but they're probably not expecting to be in the best picture conversation, at least not all the way through to the end. And there I think you still have the actor playing a role and the director, and to some degree the critics, but the plot kind of creeps back in here again. That if you're going to go see something that was made um, in a foreign language, or is it a really experimental project, you're likely to say, well, okay, um, I need to know a little bit more about this before I kind of spend, a, spend two hours reading. So that kind of kicks in. And then for documentary, um, threw that in at the last minute, wasn't really sure what I thought about it, but I gotta say, I feel like documentary is both the plot, especially if you're really aware and in touch. Critics come in and play a huge role here, and it may be uh, accumulated reviews on sites like Netflix or what have you, or maybe actually reading capsules and other sort of things. But that's part of it. Recommendation's a big piece, uh, similar to art house movies. But 
to me, the plot becomes way more important and how you spend time with the documentary than with anything that would be dramatic, especially something dramatic and quote-unquote serious. Um, because with a documentary, at least a properly made documentary, the plot's all you got. Um, I mean, you're not... I suppose somebody could go to see a documentary because it's being, you know, narrated by Morgan Freeman. You know, maybe. But not usually what draws me in. In fact, there was a recent documentary, I can't remember the name, it was narrated by Matt Damon, and the Matt Damon's name attached to it didn't help me go see it. It actually was maybe a little bit of a hurdle. It said, well, okay, what, what's going on here? I, I, was the star power really necessary? But all of this is just sort of the surrounding kind of information to help me understand what happens when it's superhero movies. Because I took a break on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it wasn't intentional because I was fed up or annoyed. I just, a lot of movies. You know, I, I couldn't keep up. And then you get behind and you stay behind. And at some point I decided, well, I, I'm going to get back into this. And I had to rely on my kids. My, 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 my son, my daughter, my daughter-in-law came over and said, okay, if you really wanted to just ignore 15 of these movies, what, and Babalu, sorry, Babalu. <laughs> Did hate to disappoint. But, uh, you know, that's why I needed somebody up here to you know, correct my wayward ways. But, uh, yeah, they, they came over and they said, well, if, if you really want to catch up, then you probably should see. And we, we watched two or three movies in a, in a row to kind of get me ready for Endgame. Because it was Endgame that finally made me decide, well, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to jump back in. But you can't just jump back into Endgame. We had missed Infinity War. We had missed Ragnarok. We had missed Civil War. There were several things that we had missed along the way. <laughs> that were going to provide some necessary helpful background information. And that was what I was watching and said to myself, you know, as these movies are playing out, we're probably going to lose Iron Man or more likely get a new one, lose Captain America or more likely get a new one. Um, there's going to be something done with Black Widow, which is interesting to me because although Elizabeth Shue is the number one reason I go see movies, you know, Scarlett Johansson's presence in the Marvel Cinematic Universe did help me get engaged from the beginning. Um, but I'm like I'm not gonna. It's not gonna bother me one iota if a different actress plays those roles. Doesn't bother me at all. Doesn't bother me if the characters change a little bit along the way. And I think the reason is that of all of these genres, there isn't a single one other than the Godzilla type stuff where character is the thing that matters most. And like you know, interested to hear if anybody would really abandon the franchise if uh, if Robert Downey Jr. had left one movie sooner and we had some sort of plot twist or new actor playing the part. But I don't see a lot of evidence of that. I skipped Batman versus Superman, not because I was annoyed at Ben Affleck, partly because I was in that same sort of hiatus of not being able to go see very many movies. But also I was kind of put off a little bit by how much knee-jerk negative reaction there was from people to Ben Affleck who nevertheless went to see the movie at least once or twice. And I know they did because they went to see the movie to complain about Ben Affleck in the movie, and then they went to see the movie again to still complain about Ben Affleck in the movie. It's like, we've seen a dozen different Batmans, and none of that is going to stop us watching the next Batman movie. Am I right about that? And, I mean, I'm convinced you could have a woman preparing Batman, and you might get a lot of talk online about it, but you're also going to get a lot of people who go to see it, either because... They want to go see it and talk about how terrible the casting decision was, or they want to go see it and find out for, for themselves whether they like it. And that's because I can't think of another genre as driven by character as this one. You know, because with a monster movie, even like the most recent Godzilla, where there's lots of different monsters, it's still a little bit narrow. But Infinity War and Endgame is barraging us with a ton of different characters, all of whom we're invested in, and none of whom were likely to abandon if someone else becomes the voice of Rocket. You know, I mean, no offense to Bradley Cooper, but it was a little bit of stunt casting in the first place, and you could replace him with someone else, and you could probably be okay with it. And it's not just because the character was drawn. It's a little bit because these are people who have come to us from another medium. And a lot of the people, you're more likely to get somebody upset about a change in the history arc and canon of the character than you are who the performer is. And when you think about it, when we watched Come From Away, we weren't watching the original Broadway cast. We saw a touring cast in Cleveland, the Rob saw a touring cast in Chicago, and if Seder gets to see it in San Francisco, it's gonna be a different touring cast, and none of, that, none of that bothers us. 
it would be really nice to have seen Hamilton with the cast that's on the recording, but I don't feel like I lost a single thing by seeing Hamilton with the cast in Chicago that happened to be on stage that night, even if there'd been some last-minute understudy substitution for whatever reason. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become a bit of a juggernaut, and even in this moment of you know, flipping from one sort of arc to another sort of arc, it still seems to be nevertheless true that this thing is going to carry on and on and on um, because there really isn't anything you can do in casting or in character. There may not be anything you can do to actually break canon and establish a new stream that would stop people who simply are that invested in this particular set of characters. Is there a casting decision that you think could be made that would be a deal-breaker? That would make someone who's a fan of these kind of movies say, nope, not this one, I'm out? I'm, I'm really open to hearing what those might be because I'm not experienced enough to know. So let me get a drink. So I'm surrounded by people who are uh. obsessed with comic books. So I have watched every comic book Marvel movie that there is. And if someone changed the voice of Rocket, I would have no idea. But I can tell you in my house... If they changed Iron Man, that would be a much, much bigger deal. I think it depends on the character. Because I think some characters are so ingrained in your brain. For someone who's never read a comic book, but I've seen all the movies, I think of Iron Man as being Robert Downey Jr. I could care less who's the voice of Rocket. So have we lost Iron Man forever? Or are we inevitably going to get some recast or re some sort of spin-off version of Iron Man? Because... It's pretty Those are two clear. different things. Yeah. Because they recast Batman a million times. They recast Spider-Man. In the middle of a Spider-Man franchise, they recast Spider-Man. And that, that was different. But Iron Man, because it was so much a part of so many movies with Robert Downey Jr., just like Morgan, uh, not Morgan Freeman, um, Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. Could they replace Samuel L. Jackson? For a lot of people who are really ingrained in those movies, where he's the threat of all of them. I bet Disney would be terrified to replace Samuel L. Jackson because he seems to be the Midas, you know? Not necessarily crucial centrally to any of these shows, but he's in a movie, $100 million overnight. And I don't think it's him, but there's a magic touch, you know? And going back to your earlier thing, the only thing I'll say about this is the first movie I ever saw with a monster was The King Kong with Kurt Russell. And I went went into it thinking I was going to be scared, and I ended up crying when King Kong died at the end. So when I went to see Jaws... I was rooting for Jaws to die, and that was like a completely different monster movie. So again, I, <laughs> spoiler, Jaws dies. So I think it also depends on the movie, if it's a monster movie. When you get a chance, check out R.C. Martinez's socks. This has been... Yeah, he's got the shark biting leg socks thing. It's really, you know, I didn't get a chance to tell him in person, but it's really a nice subtlety. That's interesting because, you know, does Steven Spielberg believe he made, does he believe he made a monster movie in Jaws or does he believe he made an adventure film? Because I think part of the reason that Jaws is so good is that it kind of is both and neither of those things at the same time. And he's got a film editor who I think is just outstanding at building the kinds of tension that you need for stories like that. Um, when I saw The Color Purple for the first time, um, Spielberg had spent a couple of movies making films with a different editor. He had used Carol Littleton, who had done things like The Big Chill when, he, um, when they did E.T. And when I saw The Color Purple, it was obvious to me that his original editing partnership was back, because even though it sounds strange to say it, the pacing and the tension in The Color Purple is extremely similar to the pacing and the tension in movies like Jaws. It's cut in a way that even though it's a highly serious Oscar quality drama um, there are moments where you've got that sort of um, Sergei Eisenstein D.W. Griffith thing happening which as much as I enjoy Carol Littleton's work as a director I don't think she was going to be quite up for it um, whereas uh, Rich Kahn does that well that's sort of his thing but yeah there's I read the book Jaws and was kind of more than just a little bit bored by it now of course I'm reading the book in junior high school and some of it was just not for me but the movie brought something out that I think was, yeah, bringing that sort of monster movie element into things, which I think helped quite a bit. The, um, you know, when it comes to the, the superhero piece, I did skip the new Spider-Man when it came out because I was trying to find my way through the Tobey Maguire era, and I wasn't really happy with that necessarily. But trying to 
follow two different Spider-Mans at the same time was a little bit more than my casual viewership could handle. But I'm pretty comfortable now having seen um, the last couple of blockbusters that I kind of like this new Spider-Man better. I like I like um, the character being a kid longer, you know, I guess is the difference as far as it goes. But I wasn't expecting that because, again, with, with two movies a year sometimes, it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit much. It can kind of, kind of overwhelm to a certain degree. The, um, the other thing I kind of mentioned is when I think about the things that I have watched lately, it tells sort of an interesting story about what happens to you as an as a adult who's an empty nester because a lot of times we would go to movies earlier in our, in our family life because we had kids and the kids were dictating the movies that we went to. And I would have thought that maybe our behavior would have shifted abruptly with no kids or teenagers in tow, but it really hasn't. And I'll, I'll maybe ask Cheryl to throw out some names and help me here. But you know, when you think about the movies that we've been to in the theaters lately, we've seen Toy Story 4, uh, Avengers Endgame, um, Aquaman. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> we saw Aquaman because of Cheryl. Um, <laughs> Which is okay. We saw Wonder Woman because of me, so it all kind of works out. But um, yeah, in between there, there wasn't just a ton of movies we were going to that I would describe as being, you know, the next big, um, the next big Oscar winner. Or uh, we did see. Well, actually, it's ironic. We did see um, the uh, the Queen, the Freddie Mercury movie. Bohemian Rhapsody. See, that name is assigned to something different in my file cabinet. It's a song. Um, and I'm really frustrated that we haven't yet seen the Elton John, um, the Rocket Man movie yet, because it didn't go to, um, it didn't get to traditional second run. Did, did anybody notice that, or is that just a quirk in where we lived in Ohio? When you see a movie that is showing in three or four different screens in town, and now all of a sudden it's just in one screen, my approach as a viewer is to say, well, I'm just going to wait a week, because it's clearly about to show up in the $1.50 cinema instead. And Rocket Man didn't do that. It went straight from there's only one theater you can watch it in to there's no theaters you can watch it. And I'm really frustrated by that because I enjoyed Bohemian Rhapsody enough to want to see Rocket Man, but I've got no illusions about why. Both those movies are musicals, in my opinion, and I, I love them because of the songs. In fact, in Bohemian Rhapsody, I was a little bit frustrated that, you know, just maybe like a comic book nerd gets a little bit frustrated if the character isn't exactly the way I remember it being in the comics or the arc that should have been set for it. When you, when you start showing Queen songs out of order and they're on tour, they're on the Queen 2 tour performing songs from a day at the races and, and jazz, it really makes me angry. And I was the only one in the entire cinema that day that was pulled out by it. Everyone, we went with a big group and they were all, they didn't even notice or they noticed but they didn't care. I'm like, yeah, it took me like five minutes to get back into the movie again because I knew there was no way that U.S. tour had bicycle race and kind of just, no. I'm hearing that it's not going to frustrate me to the same way with the Elton John movie because there's more flight of fancy in it. It's more of a kind of a, maybe even a 30s, 40s style musical. I say this having not seen it, but if it breaks, breaks with reality, it's a little bit par for the course that the whole thing is like that. Where the, the you know, Bohemian Rhapsody tried to play a little bit more serious. But these are the kinds of movies we've seen. And considering that my love of film is really genuinely very serious, uh, inappropriate conversations in the past, like number 50, my name to film critic Stanley Kaufman is a different drummer. Um, talking about my movie tastes, I'm different from most people in that I'm more likely to see something with subtitles than without if I was making my own decisions. So clearly, I go to Cheryl. I go to Cheryl to take me. To, to guide me on what to go watch because she doesn't really want to watch the reading movies. And, and I don't mind because you tend to see a lot of adventure there, a lot of uh, experimentation. But, yeah. Um, I think I'm a huge DC fan. Uh, I don't really... I've never really gotten into Marvel stuff. I don't really understand that universe. Um, I was extremely let down... Uh, because I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. Um, Green Lantern, in my mind, in reading the comic books, was never supposed to be a comedian. They got the wrong person to play Green Lantern. I will forever believe that. Um, I think that you know, being being a big old girl in the gay community, uh, who is our who is our queen? Wonder Woman is, and. I think it took so long to make a Wonder Woman movie because we couldn't find the woman to play her. Mm -hmm. 
I grew up with Linda Carter being Wonder Woman. And even even though even though I have not seen the movie yet, it's waiting for me at home to watch it. But I've been told that Linda Carter does not play her mother. And it really ticked me off. <laughs> I was like, if there was anybody who should have been over Themyscira, it should have been Linda Carter. She owned that. She, she worked for that. That woman almost broke ribs playing Wonder Woman. And the one main thing that got her that job was that she could do a pirouette. <laughs> they saw her do a spin, and they were like, oh, why don't you do that, and your clothes fly off. Okay, <laughs> we would all love to do that. Um, I think when it comes to Marvel, the next movie that we should see should be A versus X. And I think they have the people to play the parts. You know, I don't know if this Endgame, I haven't seen Endgame, I haven't seen, you know, I think the last one I saw was Civil War. Um, I think that they have a good enough Avengers cast to fight against the X-Men. And as long as they have a good enough person to play um, uh, Phoenix, you know, like, the, like actually give Phoenix a, an actual body instead of some CGI yeah. thing, I think that would make a perfect movie for them. Have they sorted out the rights issues on the X-Men piece yet? So they are good there? Well, that's an excellent segue into our different drummer. There was no way I could talk about this topic within a year of Stanley's death without giving it to You know, a different drummer segment is never going to be about introducing people to the history or the biography of anybody. My assumption is, especially with somebody like Stan Lee, everyone knows it. But to be brief and to use Wikipedia, as I often do, um, Stan Lee was an American comic book writer, editor, publisher, and producer. He rose through the ranks of a family-run business to become Marvel Comics' primary creative leader for two decades, leading its expansion from a small division of a publishing house to a multimedia corporation that has dominated the comics industry. And frankly, um, the transition into movies is maybe one of the biggest achievements of his era. The article does go on to mention that there's often some questions with Stan Lee about whether or not uh, proper credit has been given due to some of his co-writers and co-creators, especially those people who've created the images that I think live in our minds the most. And it's an interesting question to say, well, to what degree is the story idea primary and to what degree is the actual writing and delivering of that story? And with comic books, it's a compelling argument to say that the drawing itself is a crucial piece and arguably one that if we look critically towards Stanley as a different drummer, uh, he could have done better to bring more of those people who brought a lot of these characters to life with him on this, this journey through the fame and recognition, which I think maybe appropriately, but at the same time somewhat disproportionately went Stanley's way. He successfully, from a marketing perspective, has made himself the face and the name of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and along the way has done a, kind of a nice Hitchcockian touch at putting himself into these movies in a way that is subtle, light, humorous, and you know, arguably appropriate. But a lot of the things that I've spent this summer thinking about and catching up on Infinity War and Endgame and everything else, you have to look at that from the perspective of Stan Lee has been, perhaps even unwittingly, laying a popcorn trail through this forest to somehow get us to the point that now, in this particular era, we're watching these things on on film in a way that they could not have been done in the past, even with animation, at, at many, many years of my lifetime. And when he had the universe ready to go, the technology caught up with him to really make it work. In that respect, I would say that you know, Stan Lee's a bit of a groundbreaker. It also wouldn't surprise me if at some point in my future we end up with Linda Carter as a different drummer. And the reason that I say that is because her support for this community, um, to me, is as important or more important than her legacy as an actress or a singer. But what I usually look to from a different drummer is somebody who kind of brings all these things in. With their, they're not just a, they're not just a one, um, a one note kind of thing. And in addition to being an actress, she's been at least in subtle ways a bit of an activist. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, from Stan Lee's perspective, I have to look at this a bit from the outside in because I, I don't feel personally supported or targeted in any way by any of the stories that he wrote. I don't have a legacy in my life of being a comic book collector, 
But I did have the good fortune of actually starting in good places. The first comic book I can ever remember getting, and it wasn't given to me as a gift, I asked for it, but it was sort of luck of the draw, was one of the, uh, one of the Spider-Man comics where Gwen Stacy dies at the hand, or at least in the presence of Green Goblin. It was that particular you know, at, you know, comic, which just by random chance I think is becoming a little bit, well, it's fairly well known, it's seminal, and um, so I kind of started with an episode because you always with comics you're starting in the middle of an arc. There's you know, in the era before graphic novels were published and produced and delivered, you were always kind of jumping in in the middle somewhere. But that's sort of my experience. But I don't have, I don't have enough of an insider's view to know to what degree uh, we should take the X Men even more seriously than we do as something that was co-created by Stan Lee that put people who were different in a light that was heroic and supportive, but nevertheless understanding. That's kind of how I feel from the outside looking in, that for, uh, for people in minority groups and people who have been on the receiving end of bullying, the X-Men were intended in some ways to be an encouraging story arc, an encouraging piece of storytelling. And yeah, I don't know, to, again, to what degree that's absolutely true, but it's certainly kind of read right to me, and I'm kind of wondering if, to what degree there's a particular X-Men that anybody's attached themselves to, and if that speaks in any way to who they are, I'll just go ahead and reveal mine right away. Beast. I was always, if it was, a, if it was an episode of the animated or a, a comic with Beast featuring in it, that was, that was me, um, or at least that's kind of how I identified. Um, He's a beast when he travels, let me tell you. <laughs> Well, it's that combination of being, I've got this weird combination of being bigger than I should be, acknowledged, but also very capable of sneaking up on people. I, I, I've always noticed it at work when I walk into someone's office and they'll be shocked and surprised to see me. And I said, there's no way somebody my size could sneak up on anybody. You know, I'm, I'm not light-footed. I'm not a dancer. I mean, how is it that I'm just sort of catching people by surprise all the time? But, you know, Beast, from how he appeared, was very unexpected in terms of where his interests and his, his intellect were. So... Um, you know, Stanley, I, I think at the moment he died, you end up with two things. You end up with people who suddenly forget everything about you that was annoying, and you get that traditional sort of graveside, he was a wonderful guy kind of talk. And then you get an instant sort of naysayer kind of backlash that happened. So as I was reading online, I found some of the, the naysayer backlash coming from within the comic book community on credit not given to people like Kirby and Ditko, and that's fine. And then I also heard some people who felt like Stanley slowed things down and was not enough of an advocate of making progress toward gay characters. He had, he had said things like he didn't feel that it was appropriate to repurpose any of the existing characters as gay characters, but he also said he was very open to comics continuing to go in that direction and for there to be superheroes who were gay. So I did, kind of didn't really know what to do with that, but I put a little bit of weight to those arguments when I read them, because at least one of them came from the advocate. And I thought, well, I should pay attention to that. So... Um, just to wrap up the different drummer segment, though, I want to give him credit where it's due when it comes to at least race relations. And I'm probably not sharing something with anybody for the first time, but if I am, it's words worth hearing again from Stan's Soapbox in 1968. Let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costumed supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, and indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If some foreigner beat him to a job, he's down on all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen, people he's never known, with equal intensity, with equal visit venom. Now, we're not trying to say that it's unreasonable for one human being to bug another. But although anyone has the right to dislike another individual, it's totally irrational, patently insane to condemn an entire race, to despise an entire nation, to vilify an entire religion. Sooner or later, we must learn to judge each other based on our own merits. Sooner or later, if man is ever to be worth of his, worthy of his destiny, we must fill our hearts with tolerance. For then, and only then, will we be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. For that reason alone, Stan Lee's my different drummer.
want to do a couple shout outs here at the end of the show. First off, that a lot of the things that we're doing here at Pride 48 this year is remembering Mags. Uh, Mags was kind of an important member of the community to me because he was uh, he was unique. He was, in my opinion, one of our X-Men, not necessarily appearing prominently in every episode, but he brought something to the community that would not have existed within this community in any other way, and, and he will be missed. So don't forget to sign the card that we have at the back of the room and, and make sure that uh, we've, we've kind of done our part to acknowledge this truth. For his family, who might not have had too much of a direct insight into what role he played here. It was like earlier on the uh, the listener podcast. You sometimes just don't really know how much somebody has an impact, and it's worth the time to call it out. The other thing is that next on Pride 48, we have what would have been cocktails and cream puffs, but we have We Got This instead, and I am looking forward to it. It's another example of the community stepping up and covering and wrapping each other in that, that bond that makes us uh, important and appropriately different. Thanks for listening. Hi, Kyle. Bye. Bye. <laughs> have fun. Yeah. All right. I have to do an interstitial because I hate talking to a microphone. I know it makes y'all unhappy. I'm going to interview a couple people. I'm going to start with Icy Greg. Oh. Huh. Hmm. I'm starting with the most important, smartest people. Icy Greg. <laughs> Who I am. S- yeah, he's coming. He's, he's going to come up to the microphone in just a minute. He doesn't know that, but it's okay. It's, it's good for him. For those of you who watch Inside the Actor Studio, the Bernard Pivot questionnaire, that's what we're going to do with a couple people. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you. I love the questionnaire, too. I think it's one of the greatest questionnaires that's ever been done for interviewers, and I'm a natural-born interviewer, so I love it. So I figured since we are in our, you know, inside the podcast studios today for my interstitial, I'm going to interview a couple people. Is that mic on and live? No. Damn it, Adam. Get it right. <laughs> okay, so the very first question from the Bernard Pivot questionnaire is, I see, Greg, what is your favorite word? Into the microphone, because you're a podcaster. Keep it simple and go with love. Oh, okay, excellent. What is your least favorite word? Oh. Um, abomination. Okay. What turns you on? <laughs> well, women, but I, I enjoy I enjoy women who know what it is that they want and know how to get it. I'm looking at you, I see, Greg. What turn <laughs> what 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 turns you on creatively? How's that? Um, that's a weird one because there's a certain place where you get into the the same work in your nope, space. It's gonna have to work. There's a certain point where you get to where you're at that tipping point. Mm-hmm. And then you can't stop. I've talked to friends who, uh, whether like they're songwriters or, or sure. authors, they'll get to a point in a chapter where the next thing they know it's 8 o'clock the next morning and they didn't have any idea the sun had gone down. Okay. You know, so I think it's about hitting that place where you know what the idea is. Sure. And once you've got that, then the creativity really just kind of floods in. Okay. Until then, it's all just sort of ingredients, just simmering. Maybe okay, not even that's, simmering. That's fair. Yeah. You need you need the process to you, you, if you're a cook, you need the ingredients to make the dish. Yeah, and my interests are broad and weird and wild enough that there's no one thing. It's just about saying, well, what's the combination? Okay. Alrighty. Um, what turns you off? Uh, um. Well, you know, besides somebody, Ricky Burton, <laughs> who isn't sitting here. <laughs> as somebody as somebody who goes to church on a regular basis, uh, the same old story really turns me off. I believe that. Things that are real and vibrant and important should always feel fresh, even when they're familiar. Okay. And so it really bothers me when I'm hearing just the same old line over and over again. And it's why I don't watch much news anymore. I understand that. Well, on that note, what sound or noise do you hate? (laughs) Um, The sound of my cat throwing up. (laughs) 
And then it is that one where you know it's coming, oh. and you're just hoping that they're on like a surface that can be cleaned easily. It is. It is uh, easily. If I could, if I was, if I was worried about being on time for something, like if my flight out Tuesday was a problem for me, I should have just tried to record the sound of my That'll cat. That'll get you moving fast. Because there is nothing that I will hit the snooze bar on any other sound in the world, but I will not hit the snooze bar on that. Gotcha. What sound or noise do you love? Um. There's a uh, there's one particular video that comes to my mind. I'm sure the answer is the same. It's it's any any young child laughing. Laughing. But my my daughter, we had a video of her where a mylar balloon that's like at the end of its life and mm-hmm. it just sort of floats. It doesn't sink, but sure. it's not. Um, was floating up and hitting the ceiling fan, and every time the ceiling fan would hit this thing, her laughter, her hilarious, almost is she about like to from stop deep breathing? Down, laugh. Laughter. Gotcha. Oh yeah. All right. What profession other than yours would you like to attempt? Um, and we have one minute. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'd love to. I'd love to be in like an old school DJ situation where I don't have to call out the names, introduce the bride. Not that, but more like pirate radio. Okay. Yeah. That's that's, that's awesome. And what profession would you not want to attempt? Well, well, the other one. The it's, it's like the flips of a coin, right? I would not want to be the guy uh, with the two turntables and the microphone and the whole party. Depends the on Z100 me. morning crew. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Gotcha. No. And um, um, if heaven exists, uh, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the pearly gates? Well, you tried. Well, <laughs> all right. And, and on that note, we're going to send it over to people who are always trying. Failing, but trying. And that's what matters. Coming up next is the beautiful, almost as sexy as pot as my co-pilot, Gayish Boys. Hello, I'm Greg, inviting you to an inappropriate conversation about politics, religion, sex, and popular culture. We have not been served well by the old adage that says these things should not be discussed. You can find the Inappropriate Conversations podcast at iTunes or at inappropriateconversations.org. Music by Kevin McLeod.